Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. We've made it to Friday. It's January 15th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Just how many voters continue to back President Trump? Plus, a therapist helps us process our collective grief. But first, climate priorities of 2021 is today's one big thing. Yesterday, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that's NOAA, gave us, well, not the worst news about our rising temperatures. 2020 is probably not the hottest year on the planet. That dubious distinction belongs to 2016, but it likely was pretty close. Amy Harder covers energy and climate for Axios. Amy, what are you watching for this year? Like, how do you think the pandemic will continue to affect carbon emissions, which... Actually, that was one positive side note to the pandemic last year. Well, the way I describe the fact that greenhouse gas emissions have plummeted, relatively speaking, is kind of like if you stop eating altogether for any long period of time, sure, you're going to lose weight, but nobody wants to lose weight by not eating anything. And so that's kind of what the world did last year. So then what do you see as the biggest priorities for the incoming Biden administration, especially now that we know Democrats control both houses of Congress? I would say there's two big priorities. The more immediate one will be repealing everything that President Trump has done on this topic of climate change and energy. Even more important than that, how can the U.S. put more aggressive policies on the table for the U.S.'s commitment to the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, but also urging other countries? Because ultimately, it won't really make a difference if all these countries are not on the same page. What else should we be watching when it comes to climate this year? The United Nations has their big climate conference this November. That focus is usually on things like cutting emissions. But at this point in the game, given the Earth has already warmed significantly and we've baked in a lot more warmth, what is the world doing to adapt to a warmer world? Amy Harder writes about climate and energy issues in her weekly Harder Line column. Fifty percent of Trump voters think he should continue to fight the results of the presidential election. That's according to polling done by Frank Luntz, a pollster and communication advisor known for his Republican work. He's been conducting focus groups with Trump supporters and tracking how they're responding to the president's actions. Hi, Frank. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I want to ask you about the focus group that you ran last week with Trump voters the day after the attack on the Capitol. You first asked the group to use one word to describe President Trump on election night. Relieved. Proud. America first patriot. Proud. And then you asked them to describe him on that night after the attacks. Disappointed. Unhinged. Victim. Epic. What do those responses tell you about where you think Trump supporters are at right now? I never would have dreamed that the events of the Capitol would actually make people feel even more supportive of him, but that's what's happening. That there is some segment of his November vote that has turned against him and wishes he would go away. But that's a much smaller segment than those who want him to keep fighting, those who want him to challenge the system. And I don't think that we really understand that These people feel ignored and forgotten. And if Donald Trump goes away, they don't see that they've got any alternative. 60% of Trump voters will never trust the American electoral process again. 60. 
as you said, part of the problem is that no one's listening to Trump voters. Some, not all, supported the attack on the Capitol, supported the violence. How do you suggest people engage with this segment of the population? They should identify the 15 to 20 percent that's not worth talking to because you're wasting your time. And there are people on the left and on the right. It's the same. I watched this in the protests over the summer and fall of last year. There's no reason to listen to them because there's nothing to be learned from it. But there is so much to be learned by 75 or 80 percent of those protests and to be learned by 70 or 80 percent of those who show up at a Trump rally. How have your conversations with Trump voters changed your politics? What perspective have you gained? Probably the greatest impact that these conversations have on me is a sense of both disappointment and frustration. The average Trump voter has $2,000 in savings. If you were pushed up to the wall, you're 60 years old, you have $2,000 in savings, you're losing your job, and you think that the politicians are taking your money and spending it on foreign aid and on food stamps, you'd be pretty mad too. I hate how they take their anger out on people that they disagree with. I hate how they behave. And I really dislike how the president communicates, but I understand who he's talking to and I have empathy and sympathy for them because they're up against the wall and they've got no way out. But that in itself is not helpful in finding that sweet spot that will allow us to calm down and solve this. I don't know where that sweet spot is anymore, but I do know that we have to defend rule of law. We have to defend our electoral process and believe in it, because if we don't, then the country goes to hell. But we, I think we have to do so with hesitancy and skepticism. Thanks, Frank. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. You got it. Loyal listeners to this podcast will know that our entire Axios Today team, including myself, works remotely because of the pandemic. But I actually live really close to the U.S. Capitol building. So after Axios co-founder Mike Allen and I talked about the mood of the city on Wednesday, I went out to see things for myself. And I will be honest with you, what I saw yesterday actually really made me very sad to see hundreds of troops in uniforms armed protecting the Capitol is a terrible sight. And I was sure that I was not alone in this grief, on top of the collective mourning that many people have also been doing because of the pandemic, which is why I wanted to speak to Ed Hanold, who's a clinical social worker and psychotherapist in Washington, D.C. Ed, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure. I wonder if you could just start by telling me what your clients are telling you about how they're feeling about this moment? Is it similar to what I just described? Yes, it is. My clients are telling me a number of things. They're, of course, telling their accounts, if they are congressional staff, and I work with many, about where they were the day of the assault on the Capitol. What I'm hearing from everybody, and this actually includes people who don't any longer live in Washington, is that they are fearful, they are anxious, They feel unsafe, but when they are candid and they drop down more deeply inside themselves, there is a sense of tragedy. And I'm hearing this from Democrats and Republicans. This is a nonpartisan experience. Do you feel like it's possible to make sense of this without normalizing it? 
I think people engage in various defensive measures. Some may laugh in a self-conscious way. Some may try to distract themselves. But when people are candid, authentic, and genuine, what I'm discovering is that there's just a gigantic sense of loss. And I wonder how you think we should prepare for the fact that the assault on the Capitol was last week Wednesday, and we have a lot of uncertainty ahead of us for this coming weekend and for next week. Yes, I think it's important to appreciate that the experience of despair and grief is not hopeless. Because when we experience a sense of loss, we are living in our hearts. And in our hearts, we find there's a lot of love and there's a lot of kindness for each other. And that connects us to each other. And that's where our resilience comes from. So we're not giving up by experiencing our loss. We're actually remembering who we are and that we're all in this thing together. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to share this with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nyla. It's my, it's my honor and pleasure. That does it for us this week. Axios Today is brought to you by Axios and Pushkin Industries. We're produced by Carol Wu, Nuria Marquez-Martinez, Kara Schillen, and Naomi Shaven. Our mix engineer is Alex Sugiara. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. Sarah Kehlani Gu is our executive editor. And special thanks to Axios co-founder Mike Allen. At Pushkin, our executive producers are Leetel Malad and Jacob Weisberg. We love feedback. You can email us at podcasts at axios.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast app. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and have a good weekend.